Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. Okay, many of you were here last week. We uh, went through the first two verses of Colossians. This week we're going to spend about, we're going to take actually maybe 12 verses. We're going to go through Paul's prayer. And we're going to talk about faith, uh, about life, about hope. Probably I'll bring in the Dallas Cowboys. Come on, can I get an amen? So we're going to have a good time today. Uh, but just uh, for, again, some, some background information. Uh, last week we talked about Paul. Paul is writing to a young church in Colossae. And uh, this, this city is an ancient city. is located in modern-day Turkey. And Paul is writing from a prison. He's not doing prison ministries, which is good. He's actually in prison. And I, I just like, he's the... To me, he's the subversive apostle. Uh, I love how he, he's in prison, probably most likely in Ephesus, and he's writing about faith, hope, love, patience, endurance. To me, that's, that's pretty subversive. It's amazing how Paul rethinks everything. He reframes how we see suffering, how we see difficulty. Paul can have joy in the midst of a prison, right? He's not whittling wood. He's not making a shank. I don't even know what that is. He's not, like, writing revenge poetry. He's not, like getting his, his like, disciples and uh, having them put a hit on somebody who threw him into jail. I'm not saying that's prison life. That's just my caricature of it. Paul's in, in this ancient setting is in a very difficult situation, and yet he's writing about joy. I don't know about you, but that's what I want. And so uh, he's writing to this young church. Uh, most of them were pagans. And uh, now they're trying to figure out uh, who Jesus is. And if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Probably the most important thing that we talked about, and this is the dominant theme of this letter, the most important thing about you is not about you. The most important thing is how you think about Jesus. How you think about Jesus. Or let's sharpen that up. How Jesus thinks about you. Can I just say this really quick? Theology always trumps psychology. Theology is how God thinks about you, how God feels about you. Psychology is how you feel about yourself. And I don't, I don't know if you've had bad days, but I've had bad days where I don't, man, I don't like myself. I wake up on the wrong side of the bed, right? I, I, I'm, I don't know. I just had that funk inside my soul. You ever experienced that before? Things aren't right. And I have to remind myself, hey, the most important thing about me is not my circumstances. It's not how I feel about what I'm going through. The most important thing about me is how God feels about me, what he thinks about me. And I wish we were at a Pentecostal church where someone would say amen. All right. Well, here we have in verse 3. Well, let me just say this really quick. Uh, Quincy, uh, just as a frame of reference, I love him. We, uh, when he gets in trouble, he actually goes. We, we send him up to his room. And uh, he'll, he'll be up there for a while just kind of thinking about his sins, right, thinking about uh, how he broke that window and kicked his bro in the teeth or whatever. And so we'll send him up into his room. His Grammy, I, 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 love, I love my mom, but she spoils them. She, we went to Cracker Barrel. How many of you love Cracker Barrel, right? Love Cracker Barrel. We went to Cracker Barrel, and my, my mom, his grandma, got him a harmonica. And so he'll go up, when he's in trouble, he'll go up and he'll play the harmonica. So he's playing the blues, Thinking about his sins, right? So I had to come up there and give him a frame of reference, right? Dude, you got it good. 
You got a home. You get food. You get to go to Chuck E. Cheese every now and then. You get to go to Roaring Springs. I mean, this is kind of first world problems. And I just, I, I think that's kind of in miniature uh, how people think uh, or how people feel about the circumstances that they're going through. I, th- I think they give too much weight to what they're going through and not enough weight to what Jesus is doing in their life. And we'll talk more about this. So we come to chapter 1, verse 3. And Paul, he's, he's the thanksgiving apostle. Can I get an amen? He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. We continue in verse 4. So prayer and thanksgiving is really important. Then he says in verse 4, I think we have verse 4. There we go. Uh, Since we heard of your faith, everyone say faith. Since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Could you say faith in Christ? Since we heard of your faith in Christ. Faith in Christ is really important to Paul. He's celebrating this young church. He's, he's heard about their faith in Christ. Faith in Christ, let me just break this down really quick, is not uh, you and I making the decision to follow Jesus at the end of a service, right? We respond to a message or a sermon. It's really good. Uh, and we, you know, we've had a really good worship experience. And we come at the end and we lift up our hand and we, like, we declare we're going to follow Jesus. That's part of what placing your faith in Christ is about. But faith in Christ is so much more. When he's celebrating this young church placing their faith in Christ, it's so much more than making a decision to follow Jesus, and it is. It's, it's making a statement. It's making a claim that Jesus is not just a part of a pantheon of gods, right? Jesus is not just um, a, a faceless bureaucrat, or Jesus is some you know, remote being um, among a lot of remote beings in this pagan world that wants to make you feel better about yourself. No, placing your faith in Christ means that you are saying that Jesus is the center of the cosmos. You are saying that Jesus is the key to life. Can I get an amen? You are saying that Jesus is the key to the universe. The clue, as one New Testament scholar said, that when you make this claim, placing your faith in Christ, you are saying that Jesus is the clue. He is the image of the invisible God, and he is the clue to how to live a genuine human life. So placing your faith in Christ is saying that Jesus is not just the center of my personal universe. You're saying that, hey, Jesus is the center of it all. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he's running the universe. You're making a big statement. I think a lot of people, when they say, oh, I'm going to put my faith in Christ, they just naturally assume that that means, okay, I have like a private transaction or a private relationship with him that really doesn't affect anything else in my life. That Jesus will come and make me a nice person. Jesus will come and help me pay my taxes. Jesus will come and help me not hurt any cats, right? Jesus will come and help me not become an Oakland Raider fan. Something like that, right? Jesus is so much more than that. What, what you, when you place your faith in Christ, you are saying on a fundamental level that Jesus is running the universe and that my entire life is to be reorganized around him. Like Jesus is greater than LeBron. Jesus is greater than any economic force out there. Jesus is greater than laissez-faire economics or capitalism or Western-style democracy. Jesus is greater than the president. Come on. Jesus is greater than the White House, your house, a crack house, whatever. Jesus 
is in charge of it all. And life only flows through him. That's what we're saying. So if your life does not reflect that, if your life is not entirely organized around Jesus being the center of the universe, you might not understand what faith in Christ is all about. If you don't have an unshakable conviction, an unshakable conviction that Jesus is running not just your life, but Jesus is running world history. Jesus is, man, changing the planet and space and time and matter and bodies and brains. You might not understand what placing your faith in Christ is all about. Jesus is number one. Placing your faith in Christ means you're saying, Jesus, you're number one. Now, maybe some of you are not familiar with, with um, what Christ has achieved. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. And basically, it means the king. Jesus is the king of the world. And maybe you're not familiar with what Jesus has achieved for us, but Jesus died for us. And, and, and I want to get a good amen on this. Jesus went to the cross and he gave his life for you and I. He defeated sin. He defeated the powers. He defeated the Satan at the cross. He overwhelmed. He actually absorbed in his body at the cross. There was a transaction that took place where he absorbed all the disfigurement of our planet, all the dehumanizing habits and attitudes, things that have destroyed the human heart and the human mind and the human body, Jesus absorbed it in his body. Some of you need to drink more caffeine because you need to be more excited about this. And then he was buried, and then he came back on the third day. So he defeated the powers, right? And then on the third day, he came back from the dead. He launched new creation. All things are now being made new. God's future world now has crashed into our planet. We are living under a new context. You see, the good news, this is what we're talking about, the good news about Jesus is not simply good advice. So when Paul says, I'm so excited, I've heard about your faith in Christ, he's not saying, oh, you got some good news of how to be um, a better human or how to do something um, in a nicer way. No, Paul is saying, hey, this is good news. Uh, the facts of our universe have changed. Old creation has been defeated at the foot of the cross. Come on. And then Jesus came back from the dead bodily. Bodily came back from the dead and launched this brand new world that is now in operation in planet Earth. Man, I, I just lost my breath there because I'm so excited. Every, come on, everything is changed because of Jesus. And if you don't know that, then maybe you don't know Jesus. And at the end of this, this service, we're going to give you an opportunity to give your life, your embodied life to Jesus himself. So since we heard of your faith in Christ, Christ, what is that? He is the king. He is the center of the cosmos. He is every answer that you need. And then Paul continues, and I'm just so excited for the love that you have for all the saints. Think about it. This is, this is a global movement, the Christian story. It's, it's changing people, races and ethnicities and uh, people from different walks of life are all converging in this new family because of Jesus. And so people are going to have to get used to things in a different way. And you're going to have to learn to love people. And he's celebrating the love 
that they're demonstrating within this new context of ethnicities and race and just converging. Like in the kingdom of God, there's no such thing as segregation. Can I get an amen? Justification by faith is so much more than this, but at the bottom of it is a desegregating power that goes to work where there's a whole group of people, we call them Gentiles or pagans, that get included into the family of God. When we talk about the love that you have in the spirit, it evokes this beautiful story of God bringing, not, uh, bringing all these different people groups into one family. And he's celebrating the love that they have for all the saints. You see, um, we can preach good messages. We can worship good songs. uh, We could um, do good things. But if we don't love, we we don't have anything. How do you you know uh, uh, if a church is mature? How do you know if a church really gets it? You know by the love that they have for each other. Right, some people just have the gift of annoying people. Right, it's a spiritual gift, right? You've already thought about 18 different people right now in your mind. How, how, how do you know that God's actually at work in you? A true sign that God's at work in you is that, man, you don't sweat when someone says such and such thing to you. Or you don't allow um, bitterness to take over your heart. Or you don't nurse grudges. You know that God's at work in your life when your heart is overflowing with love for people. Now, you're not going to be perfect. I'm sure some of you were grumpy this week. Some of you, I mean, the heat will make anybody grumpy. Can I get an amen? Hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. I was talking to Jeff Green. Jeff Green and I were talking. We're like, man, this week I just was, it was like just a continuous like grump fest. And I realized, oh, the reason why I'm grumpy because it's 108 outside, right? And I'm sweating profusely. I need water. But love Love is a true sign that God is at work in this young church. And we go to verse 5, and I love this. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Because of the hope. Everyone say hope. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Uh, So what, what Paul wants them to think about, remember how you think about Jesus is the most important thing. But what he wants them to think about is how to learn the art of hoping. I know if you know this, but a distinctive feature of following Jesus is learning to hope or learning to live by hope. Let me just say something really quick. I want to thank you all for sending my wife and I to, I said this last week, to Disneyland. How many of you love Disneyland? Okay, many of you. It's, it's magic, and uh, the king is Mickey Mouse, you know, and everyone's having fun. And so we went there for um, a week and it was six of us. My sister came with us. And uh, I, I had an epiphany. We were in a line, and I think it was Splash Mountain. How many of you love Splash Mountain? Splash Mountain is amazing. So it was about an hour and a half wait, so we had to make a commitment. And I learned something about lines at Disneyland, specifically at Splash Mountain. Lines taught me how to hope. <laughs> right? It's funny how, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but like, you, you it was, it's just crazy. You, you kind of just, you're on this continuum of when you're in line, you're on this continuum of like emotion. Like you have panic moments. Like my son is like, dad, this is going to take forever, right? 
And then uh, you go from panic, and I remember I couldn't see the end of the line. And I just, honestly, I think it's a conspiracy at Disney. Uh, they want to create this never-ending labyrinth of despair. Like you feel like you get around a corner, and then you have 5,000 people still in front of you, right? And you get depressed. Uh, so you go from like panic. Again, you're on this weird continuum of emotion. You go from panic, then to frustration. Like I can't stand cutters. Can I get a witness to that? Like you cut in line. You know, they're like, well, it's like my family's right, way up in front of me. And I'm like, you prove it right now to me. I will walk you up and you prove it. You aren't, you know, you're not going to cut in front of me. And so I knew you experience all these weird emotions. It's funny. It's so funny. It's the happiest. Disneyland is the happiest place in the world. But when you get in a line, everybody has this blank stare. And everyone's looking at each other. It's like we've lost our minds. We're exhausted. We're tired. I probably had in this one particular instance, again, we're in line uh, for the Splash Mountain about an hour and a half. I probably had to take my kids to the bathroom four or five times. I'm exhausted. I can't see the end of it. But the unbelievable always happens. You arrive. You don't know how you arrived. You don't know how you came the end of it. You were exhausted. You might have been crying. You might have been yelling at your kids. You might have been staring somebody down. You might have been saying some crazy things in your head. But it's amazing. The unbelievable always happens. You come to the end of the line and you arrive. And my favorite greeting is when the worker looks at you and say, how many? That's just when I get a thrill, right? You love it. They said, how many? Because you know you're about ready to get uh, on, onto the ride. And so I, we said six. I remember they put us in this little log kind of a thing. And two minutes later, we're descending 50 feet into water singing zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day, right? And it's the thrill. How many of you love thrills? It's the thrill of descending into this abyss of water, singing, I have no idea what I'm singing, but filled with just so much joy that that joy outweighs the experience that you had in line, the frustration. So staying in line or lines at Disneyland has taught me something about hope. What is that? There is an end to everything. There's an end to your discouragement. There's an end to your frustration. There's an end to your pain. There's an end to your grief. Come on, somebody. There's an end to what you're going through, that difficult circumstance, that problem that keeps on shaping you. Maybe your past, you can't get past your past. Or maybe you just don't think you have a future. Or maybe you just don't think you're good enough and you just struggle with a chronic sense of inadequacy. Hope has taught me that there will always be an end to to those things that would try to keep you from what God has for you. Always. Come on, because God will make all things new. And staying in line or, or standing in line has also taught me, man, how to, how to not take present things at their face value. Like I, sometimes, I don't know about you, but I give so much weight to like my experience. I give so much weight to my, like my frustration. Anyone in here ever been frustrated? Come on, the devil is a liar. Everyone raise your hand. This week, I'm sure you were frustrated with something, right? And if I'm not careful and I've learned how to fight the good fight of faith, 
uh, I'll give in to my experience and my emotion. I give so much significance to what I'm going through. Like, you should see me when the Dallas Cowboys lose. It's just like, I just give way too much significance to that moment. I, I, I need to tell myself, man, life is so much more than the Dallas Cowboys winning or losing. Can I get an amen? And Pastor Ken said amen to that, right? And I've learned that, man, when, when we learn to allow our lives to be shaped by hope, what we're going through, even though it might not feel good, even though it might be frustrating, uh, we're not denying what we're going through, but even though what we're going through, we're just not going to place too much weight on that. We're going to place our weight on where God is taking us. Because God's taking you somewhere. And I've learned, and actually I had a conversation with Jesus this week. I'm working on um, some, some frustrating things, and I was praying through it. And uh, I, I was thinking through waiting, and, um, and God has promised some things to me, and I'm still kind of in this waiting stage. And I felt like the Holy Spirit just gave me a revelation that, hey, Chris, when you're waiting on me, you're waiting for something to come to fruition, something that I promised you, I want you to allow that to drive you closer to me. And what I've learned that when I have to be patient, we're going to talk more about patience here soon. And when I'm waiting on things and maybe some things that are just not going my way, that I can make a choice. I can choose either to get closer to Jesus or I can allow that circumstance to draw me further away from him. And I've realized that, man, when I have to wait, it's a, it's a gift, because when I'm waiting, and as I draw closer to Jesus, I realize that, man, I, I just don't want to know more facts about Jesus. I don't want to just know some abstractions about Jesus. When I'm waiting, it draws me closer to him. And I actually go from knowing facts about Jesus to knowing actually who he is in my life. So hope, how does this tie to what, what Paul is talking about because of the hope laid up for you in heaven? Uh, on a street level, people in the Western world have distorted this hope message for Christians. What, what do Christians hope for? Again, some people just assume that Christians really hope for the annihilation of the space-time continuum, right? That God, at the end of human history, is going to take planet Earth, this material world, and he's going to throw it into a cosmic dumpster fire, right? That somehow... Um, we've been, we've been, in pop culture, have been stereotyped as Christians believing that, man, we want, like, a nuclear holocaust uh, because we're going to fly off into, like, some post-mortem place away from planet Earth. Well, that's just a distortion of what hope is. Before I get to the content of hope, let me just say this really quick. It is important that we live our lives by hope. If you don't have hope, you don't have anything. I'm sorry, you, you, you will not have the resources, you won't have the strength to uh, be who God's called you to be. You won't be able to negotiate the difficulties of life. You won't be able to navigate through the good times, the okay times, and the bad times. Hope is always designed to frame how you think. One Harvard scholar said, um, and he, he's a specialist in uh, how humans interact with each other. And uh, he said, we assume that the present is the means to a preferred future, which is the end. And he goes, that's false. In fact, the future is the means to a preferred end, which is the present. 
What is he saying? He's saying you don't live your life in the now, and then you try to project where you're going from there into the future. No, he says if you want to be successful in life, you have to have your mind in the future, and you have to allow the future to guide how you think and how you live and what you do and and how you act in the present. I think the reason why a lot of Christians lose hope and the reason why a lot of Christians give up is because they've lost their perspective of where God is taking them. God has a goal for everyone in this room, and he will bring that to completion. So we manage our present by our perspective on God's future. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, what does this mean? Uh, first Peter kind of expounds on this. We find this First Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read two verses, verse 3. Uh, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a what? A living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let me just say some uh, quick thoughts on resurrection. Resurrection does not mean you fly off into heaven and somehow God transforms you into a disembodied mind where you play a disembodied harp and you shine like Rihanna's diamonds, right? Or you shine for eternity like a glow stick. Like we have, like our notion of resurrection is just, it's really fuzzy. In the ancient world, and when the New Testament authors refer to resurrection, they're not talking about, oh, your spirit flies off into kumbaya. No. What they're referring to is a bodily or a re-embodiment of your body. Resurrection came to be known in, in the early church as life after, as one scholar says, life after, life after death. Now let me just say a quick thought on heaven. Chris, do you believe in heaven? What do you think? Yes. Paul said to be absent for the body is to be present with the Lord. So before God comes back in the future and makes all things new, there is a place, God's space, where God's people will have rest. We call that heaven. You go to Luke chapter 23, you have the thief on the cross. He turns to Jesus and, and he says, please forgive me, essentially. And Jesus turns to him and what does he say? Today. You will be with me in paradise. So I believe in heaven. I believe in God's space. But the Christian story is not about heaven. The Christian story is about resurrection. It's about re-embodiment. The Christian story is about how God will make all things new. You go to Revelation 21 and 22. And it's all about the story of new Jerusalem, the temple of God coming down to planet earth. It's about how God, the end of human history, We'll make all things new. We'll bring new heavens and new earth together. We'll give us new bodies. I'm convinced God will give me a six-foot-five body. Can I get a witness? And he will make all things new. That's the Christian hope. Unfortunately, and this might be a big word, we've platonized Christian hope, where it's like, okay, we go to the disembodied space forever. No, you will go to heaven, which is God's space. It's a different kind of dimension. I can't talk about it today, but the ultimate Christian hope in, in what you and I were made for is that God will make this planet, this material world, brand spanking new, and you and I will be a part of it, and you and I will be given tasks. We're not going to be sitting in some post-mortem place playing harps, sickles, and harmonicas with a little diaper on a white cloud for the rest of eternity. That is my definition of hell. Can I get an amen? 
That's Christian hope. So Peter continues. So the resurrection of Jesus is kind of like a prototype. Jesus bodily came back from the dead. That's our hope. One day we will do the same thing. Jesus Christ from the dead. And then he continues in verse 4. To an inheritance. How many of you like inheritance? To an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Verse 5. I think we have verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Well, Chris, it just says that it's kept in heaven for me. So that means we fly off to Kumbaya. And that's where we get, our, that's where we get everything in heaven. That's actually not what Peter and Paul are suggesting. They're suggesting something entirely different. The emphasis in the Greek is that it's in heaven where your inheritance is protected. Which means, example, how many of you like ice cream? Okay, many of you like ice cream. My kids love it. They turn into honey badgers when we say we have ice cream in the freezer. And so what, what, what I'll do is I'll come home and say, you got to eat your kale. you got to eat your turnips. you got to eat your, oh, God, all that green stuff. <laughs> and then after dinner, right, um, we have ice cream for you. Well, they're smart kids. They know when they eat their dinner and when they're done, that when I said we have ice cream in the freezer for them, I've stored it in the freezer, that I'm not suggesting that they climb into the freezer, open up the carton of ice cream, and eat it in there. No, they know that I am going, because if I don't take charge of this, our house turns into an apocalypse, right? That I will go to the freezer, and I will bring the ice cream out, and then I will give them ice cream. This is what Peter and Paul are essentially saying. That the end of human history, that inheritance will be revealed. It's not that we go to heaven. Heaven comes to us. New bodies, new vocation, new tasks. I know this might be freaking some of you out, but this is genuine biblical Christian hope. Can I get an amen? So if we go back quickly to Colossians. Go back to Colossians 1 verse 6. Our hope is rooted in the fact that God will make all things new. That he is protecting your inheritance. He's protecting what he's promised to you. And if we can keep our mind on this reality, this will help us negotiate every other thing. Right? So many times we get the script flipped. Like we start with, okay, God, I just want to make it through the day. Or I I just want to... I just, man, I, I want to be able to finish this job, or I, I need this paycheck, or I need, and those are important things that we got to focus on, but our hope is not simply that we're going to make it. Our hope is not simply that God will give us a paycheck, and he will, can I get an amen, or somehow God will heal me from this issue or that issue. Our hope is that God is going, on a large scale, going to make all things new, and you and I are going to be a part of it. And if we can keep our mind on that, we can handle everything else. Amen? So learning the art of hoping is important for Paul. He's celebrating this. You know the hope that you have stored up in heaven. That is why you're loving the way you're loving. That's why you're, you're faithing the way that you're faithing, right? You're not faking, come on. You're faithing your way into the kingdom of Jesus. This is how you negotiate the difficulties of life. It's through hope, this kind of hope. And then he transitions to verse 6. Because you have faith, hope, love, which is a sign that God's at work in you. It's a sign that you're growing up in him. 
He says, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing. Because you have faith, because you have hope, because you're working out the love of God in your life towards other people, you're bearing fruit and you're growing. How many of you want to grow? As it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Continues in verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Can I just say one thought, give you a commentary on verse 7. I love what Paul is doing here. Paul has never met any of these Christians in his church. Epaphras is the one that brought the gospel. Paul is not jealous of Epaphras. He's not not playing like that territory game that unfortunately some pastors play or maybe some Christians play. What he's doing, he's honoring Epaphras. Epaphras brought the hope of the gospel to them. I don't know about you, but I think we need, as a church, we need to build for an honor of culture, especially in a culture that dishonors people. I, I just knew I wasn't going to get any amens on that. Isn't it funny how Christians, and I've talked about this so many times, how Christians get on Instagram and Facebook, and they just say whatever they want to say, and they think it's okay, and they're dishonoring President Obama and President Trump, and you have, you're on one side of the aisle, you know, and you're, you're hating on Democrats, and you're hating on Republicans, and I'm like, oh, my God. You have no idea what it really means to follow Jesus. I'm just asking. I can't tell all the other churches what to do. I can do my very best as your pastor to try to tell you. I, I can't tell you what to do, but at least give you a framework of how you should at least um, negotiate Instagram and Facebook. I think you should probably be quiet more than you write stuff, right? I, I think, man, you should learn to honor people. Uh, We're going to pray for people. You might disagree with President Trump. We're still going to pray for him. We're still going to honor him. We're still going to, you you might not like um, this Democrat. I I don't care. You're still going to pray for him, right? Christians are called not to complain or to whine about everything. We're called to love our enemies. So if President Trump is your enemy, love him. If Hillary Clinton is your enemy, love her. Come on, pray for her. And I, thought, I just love, Paul is, he's, man, he's emphasizing a culture of honor. I don't think you get miracles, I don't have time to talk about this, but I don't think you get miracles if you don't have a culture of honor. Mark, I think it's Mark chapter 6, Jesus, Mark tells us that Jesus went to his hometown and said that he could not, not that he wouldn't, said he could not do any mighty works because they were so familiar with him, because they didn't honor Jesus. So I think it's important that we, we honor we love them. That, does that mean that we're going to, like, lock, stock, and barrel, line up with everything that the person that we're honoring with? No. I, we're going to disagree with stuff, and I'm, that's okay. You can still honor someone and disagree with them. Can I get an amen? So he, is, he continues. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. He's encouraging. I love just this, this uh, spirit of encouragement. I think we need to encourage more people. I think when you come to church, the first thing you need to do before you're thinking about yourself, find somebody and tell them something encouraging. Well, I can't think of anything encouraging. Okay, uh, I've heard that before. And I'm like, that, uh, I don't know what to say to that because that's just so, uh, right? Come on. Like, maybe, maybe you don't like that person at all. Maybe compliment their hat. Start there. 
And the more you compliment somebody every single Sunday, man, if you can't compliment anything but their hat, that's a good start. Do that. Next week, come back, compliment their shoes. Maybe you don't like them, maybe you kind of like them. Just compliment them. And the more you compliment them, I guarantee the more you're going to fall in love with them. You're going to practice the love of Jesus. Can I get an amen? Not like romantically fall in love with them. That sounded a little bit weird. But you actually... You express, I was too strong. You express the love of Jesus to them. Can I get an amen? But the romantic part could work. So anyways, let's move on. Man, we need to honor each other. We need to encourage each other. And he has made known to us your love in the spirit. And then we get to verse 9. Just give me a few more minutes. And so he writes, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Uh, prayer for Paul is a non-negotiable. I'll say it this way. This might be like high-level thinking, but this is, it's the sine qua non of Paul's vocation. In other words, it's, it's the essential thing that Paul does. Prayer is not something that Paul does on the side. Prayer is actually partnering with God to bring about fruit in this church. I pray for you always. I do not cease to pray for you. We've talked about this so many times. Let me just say this really quick. I didn't say this first service. I'm going to say it now. You guys are blessed. I love you a lot, okay? Um, prayer is unlimited by space and time because it's connected to God, right? Now, well, Chris, you might argue, and this is C.S. Lewis' argument, you might say, okay, if, if prayer is unlimited by space and time, it's connected to God, um, why then do my, some of my prayers don't get answered? Well, the good news is, is that God exercises discretionary control or power over your prayer because prayer is so powerful like if God gave you everything you wish you'd be married to the wrong person you would be sick in your body mind and soul some of you would be in Vegas losing your flipping mind if God gave you everything that you prayed for Mark Francie So God has to exercise discretionary power. So here's the thing. Just because God isn't answering a prayer doesn't mean God hasn't answered it. God's just saying, hey, if I gave you that answer, it would lead you down the wrong path. You would be in a wrong relationship. You'd be going in the opposite direction of what I have planned for you. By the way, I invented you. I made you. And I know exactly what you need. I know your strengths and your weaknesses, and that relationship or that job will destroy you. So prayer is not a weaker causality, as C.S. Lewis said. It's a greater causality. It's unlimited by space and time. If we knew how powerful prayer was, we'd be praying all the time. So here's just a little aside. Um, if you have a problem with somebody, if prayer is unlimited by space and time, how about you pray for them? I think 90% of all conflict in marriage and in the church would be placated if people simply practice praying for their enemy, i.e. their spouse, i.e. their kids, i.e. their neighbor who dumps garbage in their backyard, i.e. the guy behind me that sings hallelujah and does a Pentecostal two-step a little too much, right? If we would learn to pray for those people that we have a problem with, that person might not change that we pray for, but I guarantee your heart towards that person will change, which is the most important thing, the most important thing. Here's the thing. You, you, you really, I'm, I'm realizing that, uh, how do I say this, uh, prayer's evil doppelganger. You know what it is? It's gossip. If you look at the range of things, prayer's right here, 
the opposite of prayer, what is it? It's gossip. I don't know if you know what gossip is. Gossip is all about efficacy. The reason why people gossip, the reason why we all gossip, is because on a fundamental level, we feel powerless. And so we go and we talk to this person, this person, this person, this person about our problems because we want efficacy. Somehow we're gaining control in that situation. It's the antithesis to prayer. Prayer is also about efficacy. It's also coming to God, depending upon him, presenting your problems to him, letting God take care of your issues. My word, if I let my kids handle their business at home, our house would be burned down. Come on. Our house would be destroyed. Kids would lose limbs. They do not have any comprehension of justice, right? And this is the same thing that happens when you gossip. When you try to take matters into your own hands, you have no idea what you're sowing into the heart of somebody and what that will, in, in the future, how that will affect the mind of those who you, you sowed that gossip into. Prayer is important. Paul believes in prayer. We believe in prayer. And so he goes, we do not cease to pray for you, asking that you may be filled. Everyone say filled. Filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I love this. He uses, Paul uses the language not of scarcity but of abundance when it comes to knowing God's will. How many of you want to know God's will? Four of you. Okay. One more time. How many of you want to know God's will, right? Like many people just think that I'm going to live in the dark my whole life. Well, Psalm 119 says the word of God is a lamp into my feet, a light into my path. Do you have to live in the dark when it comes to God's will? No, you don't have to. Paul uses the language of abundance. You can actually know God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, which means you got to use your brain. You got to think, can I get an amen? Many people think that, oh, if I'm going to follow Jesus, I got to think less. Actually, what I've realized, that if you want to follow Jesus, you got to think more. You got to think through the content of, of your belief. It's, it's, a, it's a strange phenomenon that's been going on for about 200 years in America. We, we Really, we worship at the altar of authenticity, meaning that if you just feel right, you're right. We don't care about truth claims. I know some truth claims can be like a guise for power claims, but we just don't care about truth at all. We care about feeling our way through our circumstances. And I believe we need to be sincere. Can I get an amen to that? I believe in authenticity, but I don't believe in authenticity at the expense of truth. We need to know what we believe. It doesn't mean you have to be an academician. It doesn't mean you have to like study history. It doesn't mean you have to like spend 20 hours a week researching and writing, but it does mean that we have to think through God's will. And here's the thing, God will speak to you. You be filled with the knowledge of his will in all, in all spiritual wisdom. Know who you are in Jesus. Know the hope of your calling. And then he links verse 9 with verse 10. Verse 10 reads, and if you're thinking, properly thinking through what God wants you to do, he's going to speak to you. It's going to be abundant. God's not tantalizing you and trying to manipulate you. He'll speak to you. Verse 10, then you'll be able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You see, Christians, early Christians characterized walking with God as a primary metaphor for the Christian life. God wants to walk with you. How many parents, and I got to get going, but parents, how many of you love taking walks with your kids? I love it. There's only two of you. Okay. Uh, My wife and I, we love, wow, see you later, bye. 
Uh, we, we love taking walks with our children. I love it at night. How many of you love summer nights? Right? It's, it's, just, it's, it's like summer, summertime, fresh prints comes to my mind. The air is filled with nostalgia, right? Come on, you're walking around, you go to the playground, you're playing baseball. I love it. I love taking walks with our kids. You see, your walk is not just uh, an isolated thing, a light, isolated experience. Your walk is a walk with your father. Your father's not a faceless bureaucrat. Your father is not some remote soupy deity out in the space-time world. Your father is close to you. And learning to think like a Christian is learning to think like this. God wants to take your hand and walk you through life. Can I get an amen to that? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul is directing our attention to Genesis 1, 26 and 31. Bearing fruit in every good work is an allusion to the Genesis story. In other words, Paul is saying, hey, the Christian story is not about, hey, you can have a rich spiritual experience. You can have like that feeling inside your soul. And God can do something privately in your heart. That's not what the Christian story is about. The Christian story is all about a new Genesis. It's about the facts of our world have changed and you and I can be a part of it, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Genesis 1:26, give me three minutes and I'll be done, I'll pray for you. But Genesis 1:26 says that you and I are made in the image of God. Image bearers in the ancient Near East setting referred to a rare category of people. It was kings. Only kings could bear the image of their God or their deity. What we have in the Bible or the biblical account of creation is that God says that man, which is a reference to male and female, all humans bear the image of God. Here we have this democratization of this role that God has given all of us, and that is to take care of creation. Come on, to attend to the garden, to, to be wise stewards that reflect the love and the goodness and grace over our families, over our businesses, over our churches, come on, over everything that we do, over creation itself. That is the primary goal of human existence. Give up happiness, N.T. Wright says, because God's given you a throne. You've been called to be a king and a queen. This is what Paul is saying. You're called to rule. You're called to be an influencer. Can I get an amen? And I know Americans were like, king talk freaks us out. Like we've embraced Vox Populi, Vox Day. The voice of the people is the voice of God. We don't believe in kings anymore. But the Bible says it has an alternative narrative that you and I are called, when we follow Jesus, we're called to influence and to attend to the fruit that only God can put in our lives. So he took man and he took woman and he put them in a what? In a garden. And he said, you, you tend to it, right? You tend to it. You tend to it. Now, I don't know much about uh, gardening. How many green thumbs do we have here today? Okay, quite a few of you. This is my assumption, that gardening requires radical, can you, can you give me maybe five more minutes? This is okay. Requires radical humility. Gardening does, because you're not in charge of the ground. You're not authority over the, over the seed, over the plants, right? I wish I could scream to tomato and say, grow, but it's not gonna grow. My responsibility is to attend to the garden, to fertilize it, right? To take techniques. Is there techniques? To bring the garden into flourishing. 
I'm, in other words, I'm not a creator, I'm a curator, right? I attend to the fruit. You see, God brings the fruit in your life. God brings all the goodness to you. You're not responsible to bring the goodness to your life. You are responsible to attend to it. I think this is pretty self-evident. Like, you didn't make your life. You didn't, you didn't, you're not the reason of your own existence, right? 1975, your parents had a great night, and nine months later, you're here, right? Like, you did not invent yourself. You're not a, a cre- co-creator. You're a curator. God brings all the goodness. I love this. And your responsibility is to develop that, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Let me just say this really quick. God has called you to grow and to increase. You shouldn't be the same that you were five years ago in your walk with Jesus. Can I get an amen to that? My wife and I, we went to Portland three years ago, and I was born in Portland, and I took her to this house that I I grew up in, and I remember thinking, I went to this house, how small it was. And I remember thinking, and I kind of peeked, we kind of saw the backyard, and we saw this tree. I remember as a a five-year-old boy looking up this tree, thinking, again, this is the backyard of this house in Portland, that it was at least 100 feet tall. And, and three years ago, I went by, it was probably 25 feet, 30 feet. Isn't it amazing how you look back on your life or you go back to like childhood homes and uh, things just shrink? Why? Because you've grown. They shrink because you grow. Now, if you look back on your life and you're exactly the same as you were five years ago or you're still struggling with the same issue, I don't think God's the problem. I I think it might be that you haven't allowed God to grow you up. God wants to grow you. You shouldn't be the same today as you're going to be next year. Can I get an amen to that? We go from glory to glory. We go from precept to precept. Now, you and I are not perfect. Glory to glory kind of looks like this. You go up, and then you kind of go down, and you go up, and you're kind of like all over the place. We want it to be like this. It ain't going to happen. Glory to glory, ain't gonna happen. Come on, you get it? Ain't gonna happen. This is kind of what happens. You keep on going up. You have your issues. You're not perfect. You're wrestling. You yell at the Washington Redskins fans. You drink too much Diet Pepsi, too many maple bars. Come on, but you get glory to glory. Here's some kale, some turnips, some, you know, whatever. You're going, you're going towards God. It's not gonna be a perfect growth, but you're called to grow. Come on. So as we close, verse 11, really quick. I know I've gone a little too long. We'll blame the worship team. I'm totally kidding. They're amazing. May you be strengthened with all power. What is this a reference to? The Holy Spirit. You need to think right, but you also need power. If you feel powerless today, I'm going to pray for you, and I believe God's going to give you power to what? According to his glorious might, power to endure. To be patient with joy. If you don't know anything about ancient history, literature. There's no one in the ancient world that ever combined endurance, patience with joy. No one did it. Because we all know that, man, patience and joy don't go together unless you're a hoping person. Unless you've learned the art of hoping, believing that no matter what you're going through, God's going to work out everything for your good. According to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, patience, 
We need patience. When you have joy and when you have hope, you can endure all things. And it's the Holy Spirit that gives you power to endure everything. To even when the line doesn't seem like it's going to end, the unbelievable will happen when you just stick to what God has told you. When you make a commitment to follow Jesus, come hell or high water or rain or tornadoes, apocalypse, zombie apocalypse, or whatever, you will have the strength to overcome everything. Let me just say this. This last week I was praying through patience and I'm, I'm realizing a lot of people get frustrated with their growth. They're, and it, it actually affects their ability to be patient, to endure a lot. Um, and they start, if they're not careful, they start curving in on themselves and obsessing about, well, I should be at this point in my life. There was a pastor about 15 years ago named Rick, Rick Warren. Uh, I'm sure no one's heard of him. He wrote a book that wasn't that, you know, wasn't that, wasn't a top seller at all. Um, he, uh, but he wrote a book, and in this book he said, you know what a lot of people struggle with? Their struggle, and they got to fight the good fight of faith, is that they, they so focus on where they're supposed to be, they forget where they've come from. When, when you're thinking properly, and when the, the Holy Spirit's working in your life, you, you're going to have a healthy respect for where you've been right? Least you can say, and this is the patient vision, this is the patient virtue will always say, hey, I might not be where I'm at, but at least I'm not where I used to be. And if you're frustrated today with growth, if you're frustrated today with stuff, you can, you can endure it through the power of the Holy Spirit. You can endure it because God, man, God is always going to work out everything for your good. Now, I end with this. Verse 12, and I'm done. You guys are amazing. You're the best service in the world. I know you can handle this. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. This is one long prayer, and Paul frames it with thanksgiving. You, I'm, if, if you're going to call me anything, call me the Thanksgiving pastor, because I'm going to preach about Thanksgiving all the time. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. Giving thanks to the Father giving thanks to the Father. We're called to abound in thanksgiving. Paul uses thanksgiving six times. What does he say as I close? Or what is he suggesting when it comes to the art of giving thanks? What he's saying is that a true sign that God is at work in your heart is when you learn to give thanks always. We taught our kids, my wife and I, the most important thing you can say when you receive a gift, when you receive food at a restaurant, or when mom buys you clothes, is what? Thank you. Why? Is it because we want them to practice social niceties? No. The reason why is because when my kids say thank you, I know that they got it. That they have a, an understanding of reality itself. You see, the closer you get to Jesus, the more alive you're going to become, the more reverent you're going to become, the more human you're going to become, and the only appropriate response is thanksgiving. Gratitude. He's qualified you to share the inheritance of the saints in the light, and we close in verse 13. He says, 
He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Verse 14, we're done, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption is compressed Passover language. This is an allusion to the Exodus. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying you were in the kingdom of darkness. The powers had enslaved you. You were disfigured by evil and pride and lust and arrogance. And Jesus, through his achievements on the cross, and he was buried, and then he came back on the third day, not because of anything that you have done. He came back from the dead for you, and he offered forgiveness. And so you're no longer under the, the enslavement of sin, under the enslavement of the Satan. Come on. Under the powers of the powers, you are in a brand new stinking kingdom. And there's life, and there's healing, and there's grace, and there's joy. And when you get that, the only response is, thank you, Jesus. The Eucharist, or communion, comes from a Greek word meaning simply to say thank you. I want to read this story, and I'm going to close, and I'm going to pray. Is that okay? It's going to be five hours long. Totally kidding. It'll be about one minute. Uh, This uh, New Testament scholar, he wrote this. He was in his mid-20s. He was in the army. Uh, It's titled, this is his devotional musing. He called it The Need to Praise. He goes, the next winter, I sat in my army fatigue somewhere near Alabama, eating my supper out of a mess kit. The infantry training battalion that I had been assigned to was on this, this camp camping thing. There was a cold drizzle of rain, and everything was mud. The sun had gone down. I was still hungry when I finished and noticed that a man nearby had something left over that he was not going to eat. It was a turnip. And when I asked him if I could have it, he tossed it over to me. I missed the catch. The turnip fell to the ground, but I wanted it so badly that I picked it up and started eating it anyway, mud and all. And then as I ate it, time deepened and slowed down again. It's a man after my own heart. With the lurch of the heart that is real to me still today, I saw suddenly, almost as if from beyond time altogether, that not only was the turnip good, but the mud was good too. Even the drizzle and the cold were good. Even the army that I had dreaded for months. Sitting there in the Alabama winter with my mouth full of cold turnip and mud, I could see at least for a moment how if you ever took truly to heart the ultimate goodness and joy of things, even at their bleakest, the need to praise someone or something for it would be so great that you might even have to go out and speak of it to the birds. I think when we get to the, when we get a moment and we bump up against who Jesus is, this need to praise him will erupt out of you. Amen. I, you know what I think we should do? Man, we're going to do it. You might not like it, but I think we should stand and we should give God some praise right now because of what he's done. Go ahead. I want you to stand. I want you to lift your hands. Come on. And for 30 seconds, let's tell Jesus how good he is. Come on. Come on, tell him. Thank him for his love. Thank him for forgiveness. Thank him for the redemption of your body. Thank him for hope. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.